0: All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with goodranchers.com. That's right. If you go on to GoodRanchers and you use promo code NIC and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breasts, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, everyone. I hope you have all had a great Christmas, Hanukkah, holiday season. Uh, We know we have and we're very very thankful for your support throughout this year. It's been a great year for the podcast and we didn't want to let you down by not having something going this Tuesday even though the team is not all together. So what we have is actually a compilation of several questions that I've been asked over a variety of in-person events that we've had over the last several months. This is everything from college universities, high schools. Uh, We did a pints and politics at a local brewery that was great. We had a homesteaders meeting. So we've got some of these questions together. We're going to Put them all, and we're going to see how I did answering the questions and making the argument. So let us know what you think. And again, hope you continue to enjoy your holiday
1: season. So now I will hand it over to Hamilton. Take it away. Thank you, Nick, and welcome to this episode of Making the Argument. While the team is spread up and down the East Coast for the holidays, that's not going to stop us from bringing you a value packed episode of our podcast. I'm really excited to share this episode with you as I've had the privilege of joining Nick at many events over the last few months. And now you will be able to as well. So let's jump right into it with our first clip from Woodbury High School on December 7th, where unfortunately we're not able to share the audio of the question being asked due to the nature of the event. So here's the question. It seems like America is completely polarized. Do you think that is true? And how much of a role do you believe social media plays in that?
0: I think it's pretty true. I think social media plays a big role. I think news plays a big role. But honestly, I think government plays the biggest role. Um, one of the things that I think is really problematic is when people start believing that the government is the core component of your culture or society. Society can exist without government, right? Governments don't exist without societies, but societies can exist without government. And and when you look at a society as being built upon certain cultural institutions, the family, right, Uh, the the church, synagogue, mosque, um, certain cultural institutions that may just be as simple as things like uh, cuisine or traditions, right? these are all things that can, that can unify people away from politics. When you look at your system of government or government as the central glue that holds all of your society together, well, once again, you find yourself in a situation where you have competing interests deciding that they want to benefit themselves at the expense of someone else, and this all becomes a lot more hostile as a result. So I, I think if we can get back to the idea that there's certain things that, that should be able to unite us that are separate from politics, and the more connections we build up in that realm and the less connections we're, we're, we associate ourselves with on this realm, I think you get a more peaceful society over here. Now, I'm not advocating for anarchy, right? I, I, I think the government plays legitimate roles, um, but when it's seen as the, the central theme around your society, I think that can be really dangerous. Another... Another point of this that I, to kind of your point on different things that I will say or do. I've become really concerned with how politicians use the word democracy. They use democracy as if it's synonymous with freedom. Democracy is not synonymous with freedom. You can have a state that deprives you of all kinds of civil liberties through democratic processes. So democratic processes might be a necessary component of a free society. It is not a sufficient one. I guarantee you if most of the decisions that you made throughout your life had to go through a democratic process, you would not think you were living in a free society. So I think it's very important that we understand that genuine freedom is you being able to live your life the way you want, it's you being able to dispense of your property and your talents and your labor the way you want, provided you're not infringing on the rights and liberties of someone else to do the same. So. We maximize that, I I believe we have a a much more civil society. So, as much as I'm frustrated by what goes on on social media or the press, um, I do think it stems from how do we as a society choose to solve problems. And if we choose peaceful ways to do it, I think think that's far more likely to be reflected in the other aspects of our lives. But if we choose this, well, of course, the media and everyone else is going to focus on that as if this is the primary way that we solve things or adjudicate differences. And so I think it's a symptom, not the, not the ultimate cause.
1: It's an interesting idea to consider that while the social media platforms we use every day may facilitate further division, we should turn our focus to the government as the main culprit for where division stems. I really wish we were able to share this entire event with you because these students ask some really incredible questions. But if you'd like to participate in discussions on these topics with Team Freitas and other members of our community, Head down to the description of this show and join our community chat there. You'll need to download the Volley app and create an account, but I promise it's worth it. Moving along, this next question comes from a great student at the University of Charlottesville on November 9th. So after Nick's opening statements, this student had the following question. So just some of your argument briefly, it's
0: democracy is necessary for freedom, but not sufficient. What would be sufficient for freedom? So sufficient for freedom is, so what we generally think of as, as freedom, at least within, I would say, kind of, I keep, I keep qualifying this statement, but it's necessary, right-wing ideology within the American political tradition. Uh, freedom is freedom from oppression. So you, you contrast that with things like FDR's four freedoms. FDR just didn't think freedom of speech, freedom of religion. He also said things like freedom from want. I, I'm here to tell you that's absurd. You can't have You can't have a right to be free from want. It it goes into this whole concept of positive rights versus negative rights. If I'm free, let me give you an example of this. I'm sitting in the General Assembly. One of my colleagues comes up to me, who I respect, but we have very different views on the world. And she goes, Nick, I have a a idea that I want that I think you're gonna agree with. I said, okay, what's that agree? She goes, I want a rules change which makes it against the rules of the House of Delegates to be able to conceal carry in the observatory, in the gallery, and I said, I, I don't agree with that. And she goes, Nick, you were a Green Beret. You know that you never want the enemy behind you on the high ground with a gun. And I said, the difference is, I don't see my constituents as my enemy. <laughs> and she goes, that's not fair, Nick. I said, well, no, I'm just, that's what you said. And she goes, so you're telling me your right to carry a gun trumps my right to feel safe. And I said, you do not want to use that argument. She goes, yes I do. I said, okay, you're saying you have a right to feel safe. Yes, presumably I have a right to feel safe. Yes, great, I only feel safe if everyone has a flamethrower. So how do we adjudicate now between your rights being infringed versus my rights being infringed because one of our rights are about to be infringed. That's the problem with positive rights. You do not have a right to the labor or property of another human being. We fought a war over this, <laughs> right? But the moment you say you have a right to health care, you have a right to food, you have a right to housing, the moment you say this, if you mean it as an inherent right, which is typically what they're referring to, then what we're ultimately saying is you have a right to somebody else's property and labor. It's to enslave somebody else to your needs, wants, and desires. We're not supposed to do that. So freedom is freedom from that sort of oppression or coercion. So the idea is is that if you're willing to accept, now again, you can go into the whole, we could could sit here and discuss ANCAP philosophy like anarcho-capitalism or anarcho-socialism or whatever it is. But typically what we're trying to get to is a society, in my opinion, that is as voluntary as possible. So as little coercion as possible. Now, I'm not someone that believes that, you know, again, we don't need a military or we don't need a criminal justice system. I do think those things are necessary. I think there's other components where the government can play a role. But because I see government as one of the primary sources of oppression, it has to be kept within very, very strict legal boundaries. And those legal boundaries only have meaning if you have an informed citizenry that recognizes both the threat and the need for the boundaries. The Constitution, without people that actually believe in why it's necessary, is a very nice old piece of parchment. Right? you, you've, you have to have the conviction that what we're protecting against here is not some you know, nice entity that is there to give us nice things, right? It serves a purpose, it serves a function, but it operates based off of violence, not cooperation, or excuse me, not voluntarism. So that's, that's what I would say, is when you create the government, make it limited, keep checks and balances on it, and then maximize individual liberty combined with personal responsibility. Can I just say, one of the things I hate, like every once in a while, um, I, I got a bit of a libertarian streak, right? And every once in a while, I, I, I get in arguments with some of my left-leaning, liber, you know, left-leaning libertarian, and I'm like, what you want is not liberty, what you want is licentiousness. You want to do whatever you want, and then you want someone else to pick up the tab. That's not liberty. Personal responsibility is a heavy component of it.
1: So, quick follow-up, would you agree with, like, where, when you were speaking, I can only think of, I think the John Adam, Adams quote, democracy can only thrive with a moral and just
0: society. Yes, that our or constitution industry... was created for a moral and just society and is totally unsuited to any other. Yeah, how do we keep that up? Like, it seems like... That's an individual rule. Um, so, that's, that's one of the reasons why we've placed such an emphasis on the family unit as the building block of society. A lot of people conflate society with government. Societies tend to form governments in order to protect something. It starts off as physical protection. Oh my gosh, here comes the, the horde. We, we, need to, we need to come together in order to defend against the horde. Right? And then there becomes other duties and responsibilities that usually get you know, conveyed. Or the biggest horde comes in, takes over, and goes, guess what? We're in charge now. Where's your grain? Right? That, that was kind of the march of, of history. Um, but society is really just individuals, um, many times engaging in voluntary relationships, like something like marriage. Right? Having kids, raising those kids, and then passing on a certain set of values, which, you know, hopefully is, is rooted in um, a particular look on moral law. And again, if we, if we want to get, that's another fascinating conversation. I can talk about moral law all day long. And does moral law require a moral law giver? Spoiler alert, I think it does. Right? Um, but, but how that's a necessary component. Because it goes back to what we were saying earlier, right? This whole idea that democracy is antithesis to authoritarianism. No, it isn't. You just got a bigger group of people using authority against a smaller group of people. And, and it's fascinating, because when I'll bring that up, I'll usually have someone on the left say, well, nobody means that, okay. Well, if 51% voted for it, why don't you mean that? Well, because there's certain principles. And where do those come from? You really want to really mess with somebody? You've ever heard the term, you can't legislate morality. Here's what you tell them back. Actually, it's the only thing you can legislate. And that blows their mind, right? and I'll tell you why. Let's take the most like mundane law you can think of. You're not allowed to jaywalk. Why? Why are you not allowed to jaywalk? Danger. Danger to who? You and others. Oh my gosh. So we're concerned about preserving innocent human life. So jaywalking is rooted in a in a philosophy, in a moral philosophy that human life has inherent value and therefore should be protected. Right? We can do this all day long. You want to go to speed limits, you want to go to lights, you want to go to food regulations, you want to go to... trade. I mean, whatever it is, it's always rooted in some sort of moral principle. Now, what we should not be legislating is usually mores. That's the idea where we have a certain way of looking at something or we have a certain sectarian approach to something and we
1: mandate that you have to believe that. I think what's so interesting about this last segment is that we've all heard the statement that the Constitution was created for a moral and just society and is totally unsuited for any other. But I think Nick's comments are really inspiring here because the reality of America being a moral and just society is entirely dependent on how you and I choose to live our lives on a daily basis not what politicians decide to be true. This next question comes from a homesteading and food freedom event held on December 12th, where Nick and the attendees discussed food freedom legislation that he introduced for the 2023 Virginia session. Now, one attendee raised an interesting point, but before I play the clip, let me ask you this. During the pandemic, what item do you believe was the most popular on the black market? You're about to find out. I think as communities, we need to just take this in our own hands. I will barter.
0: I will go with cash. I don't give a shit if the government knows my business. And I think we all need that stance. We can take care of each other as a community. So for those of you who don't know, I, I, do a, I do a podcast called Making the Argument. And on that podcast, I had an entire episode dedicated toward the black market. And, and here's what I told people. I said, when I say black market, what you probably think... Is heroin and AK 47s. <laughs> All right? Anyone want to take a guess at what? I think it was the number one most popular item on the black market was, I think it was last year. Raw milk. Raw Wasn't raw milk.
1: Eggs.
0: Wasn't eggs. Shoes. Wasn't shoes. Baby formula. Baby formula. One of the number one items on the black market was baby formula. And so here, here's what I tell people. When they say black market, what they're automatically doing is conjuring up this image of what we might all consider, or maybe some of us wouldn't, but most of us might consider like dangerous or immoral activities, right? human trafficking, things that we all understand are illegal for necessary purposes because another human being is being directly harmed by that transaction taking place. Okay, but how many of you have gone to a professional sports event before and seen people out front selling tickets? okay, that's what you might call a gray market, black market transaction going on right there. The reason why they do it and the reason why people still engage in it is because we all understand that there's a big difference between doing that, right? And human trafficking. And what we saw during COVID was actually an increase that I think is very, this is to your point, very, very healthy in the American psyche. And that is we got to a point where we basically told the government where they could stick it. We just weren't doing it anymore. I'm not wearing your stupid mask, right? Or I'm not doing, and again, if anyway. I'm not wearing your stupid mask. I'm not shutting down my business. I'm not gonna refuse to engage in commerce. I I am going to my church, right? And if you don't like it, come and get me. And the reason why that's so important is because it's actually one of the way, it's actually one of the mechanisms that an authority no less than Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wrote about in the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. One of the ways that you actually step back and you push back against government overreach is through civil disobedience. We're not talking about hurting anybody. We're not talking about firebombing anybody. All right, but the bottom line is is we should all be thankful that we have a history of civil disobedience in this country. And I'll give you two examples. One, I'm really glad Rosa Parks broke the law. I'm really thankful for that. Let me give you another instance of nullification that doesn't come up a whole lot. And this wasn't just nullification, this was interposition. So nullification is when a state essentially says, we don't recognize that federal law and we're not going to help you enforce it within our jurisdiction. Interposition is when when the state actually comes in and says, not only are we not going to help you enforce it, but if you try, we will defend our citizens against you. So one of the first cases of this, there's really early cases when you get into the Whiskey Rebellion and everything else. That's where some of the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions were were, were talking about. But another case was actually the Runaway Slave Act. So when the Runaway Slave Act was passed in Congress, what that meant was when somebody actually fled a slave state, they had to make it all the way to Canada. They couldn't just get to a free state because federal marshals would come in, arrest you, and then return you to captivity. They tried to do that in Wisconsin. Wisconsin was an abolition state. Wisconsin didn't just tell the federal marshal, you're not allowed to do this in Wisconsin. The sheriff arrested the federal marshal and put him in jail for trying to execute that law. So to your point, at the end of the day, you're the only one that can decide whether or not you're gonna be free. You can elect people that believe that you're free and believe that you deserve to remain so and will fight for it in the legislature. But ultimately, if your, if your freedom is completely dependent upon whether or not I convince a majority of my colleagues to protect that freedom, you aren't. That's the bottom line. It is something that you have to take personal responsibility for and on some level you are going to have to decide and we were talking about this earlier and you're a very good representation of it, sir. I will tell you that much. A very good representation of it. Don't tell me what you're willing to fight for. Tell me what you're willing to sacrifice for. Because that tells me what you really love, what you really care about and what you're really willing to risk something for. And we are getting to that point and we've already seen pictures of it during lockdowns, and there's a lot of people that looked at those lockdowns not as an unfortunate thing that they felt that they had to do in a point of crisis. There was a lot of people that looked at that and absolutely ate up and loved the amount of power that they had during that entire episode, and are still reticent to give it up right now. That's not everybody. There were some people that were scared that thought they were making the right decision, but don't, don't ever fool yourself into believing that there weren't people that thoroughly enjoyed having that sort of power over whether or not you could go out or conduct business, or in places in Michigan, whether or not you could go to certain sections of the store that had been arbitrarily shut down because Governor Whitmer says so. So, I will say, yeah, there, there is, you always have to be prepared to understand what are you willing to do, what sort of transactions are you willing to engage in, regardless of whether or not the government says so. And I'll do everything I can to make sure that the government stays off your back while you do it. I'll do everything I can to make sure that the code reflects what a free society should already look like. But I can't promise you I can make that happen. I can't promise you all of my colleagues are gonna agree with me on that. And so when push comes to shove, there there very well could be a time where you have to decide what are you willing to do, what are you willing to sacrifice, what are you willing to risk? in order to live your life in accordance with your values. And quite frankly, I think it's been a while since Americans have been faced with that decision. But there's a lot of people a little bit further down the road all over the world that are finding out that if you're not willing to take a stand on the little things, you aren't going to have the resources, the capability, or the grit to do it when it's the big things.
1: Don't tell me what you're willing to fight for. Tell me what you're willing to sacrifice. That line really hit me because our freedom is something that we must take personal responsibility for every single day. Before we continue, I want to remind everyone that Team Freitas also produces a show called The Why Minutes, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. In the show, we explore the underlying reasons, motivations, and philosophies that inform decisions, promote greater understanding, and advance a society dedicated to preserving and advancing freedom. Tomorrow we have an episode publishing titled, Why India is About to Overtake China. It's fascinating because we would think that the United States is the greatest economic threat China faces. But in fact, it might be India. The reason for this is that India has adopted free market policies, while the Communist Party of China has headed in an entirely different direction. I'll leave a link to the show on Facebook and YouTube in the description of this episode. This next clip comes from the College Republicans event on September 6th the student actually challenges Nick on something he had said earlier in his speech.
0: Okay, thank you for coming. I'd like to ask a question that may push back on your framing regarding your skepticism to use executive and I assume judicial power to pursue Republican ends. If you were to enter a boxing match and your opponent took off his gloves and started fighting to the death, would it be worthwhile to continue boxing by the rules, sir? So I guess the question is, To what extreme do we take that? Right? Because th- this is what it is. Like for everything that we talk about, what's the limiting principle? So for instance, if they have a judge that is a legal positivist, and so they, they don't take a they don't see their role as faithfully interpreting the Constitution, they see their role as wringing out of the Constitution whatever policy objective they want. Is our solution, therefore, to elect the same sort of judge? Now some people will say, well, if they're doing it, we gotta do it too. Now, I can see a limited argument, um, so for instance, when Trump was doing tariffs, I am an adamant free trader. But Trump was saying, okay, if, we're gonna do, if, if you're going to raise your tariffs on us, we're going to raise tariffs on you, and if you lower your tariffs, we'll lower ours. You can make an argument that there's a certain degree of mutually assured destruction taking place there, and the hope is, is that the other side will recognize this is not a good way to do business and take corrective action. Here's what I want you to understand. What you're suggesting is poisoning in the hope that it'll kill the problem faster than it kills you. That's a dangerous game to play, right? So, for instance, in 2020, I watched as Democrat politicians cheered on people that were running through cities, setting things on fire, looting small businesses, burning them to the ground, setting up autonomous zones, and murdering people. I don't think the response to that should be, well, if it works for them, (laughs) right? So that that would be my question, is what is the limiting principle? The moment we start operating outside of the Constitution in order to achieve our objectives, I would argue to some degree you're already achieving their objective. Because they don't want constitutional limitations. They provide lip service to the Constitution when it suits their ends. I'm not talking about every Democrat, but a lot of the most prominent thinkers, you, you think for a second, AOC, Bernie Sanders, or Elizabeth Warren would have any compunction about getting rid and gutting about half of the Constitution tomorrow if it served their ends? I don't think they would. So if our solution is going to be, well, if it works for them, it it should work for us, that's a very, very dangerous game to play. So I can see maybe some limited application for it, but I think it has to stay within constitutional boundaries. Otherwise, we're we're going to lose, we're just going to be a part of the loss. Like We're going to be partially responsible for it. Um, but it is, it's is—it's a difficult question.
1: And finally, this clip comes from our Pints and Politics event on December 8th. This was an incredible event with over 80 attendees, and we even were able to meet some of you, our listeners who live in the area as well, which is super cool. The gentleman proposing this next question is actually a listener of the show. Take a listen.
0: Uh, by the way, uh, go Navy, beat Army. So. <laughs> I had to throw that out Navy. there. Navy, never heard of her. No. Yep, exactly, <laughs> a good one. Um, so a couple of different questions. I'll try to keep them concise, although that's not always my strong suit. So first off, with the last election, your perception on how we could improve. There's a lot of theories, there's a lot of things that obviously our candidate probably did well, things that perhaps didn't go so well. I'm just kind of curious your perspective on the last election and areas that we could improve. So I, the biggest, there's a reason why whenever I'm asked what is the one issue that, like, what is the one hill you would absolutely die on if you could get some change? The reason why it's education reform is because when you have an educational system, starting off in kindergarten, going all the way up to higher ed, that is essentially pushing a particular narrative and worldview, and that worldview is, is not rooted in free market economics. It's not rooted in individual liberty. It's not rooted in constitutional limitations on government power. It's actually rooted in this idea that, gosh, if only we had more government, this place would be great. Well, then of course you're going to create voters that will vote that way. I, I, I will say there, there is all kinds of things we need to fix with respect to election law. But if you believe that the only reason why we lose elections is because they cheat, as opposed to the fact that they control education, media, Hollywood, music, entertainment. social media, they, cre- they control all of the major cultural institutions and we're shocked when we lose an election? And then we, and then conservative parents will take out a second mortgage on their house to send their kid to Berkeley. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this going, you really don't know why we're losing elections, right? So, so part of this is, yes, there, there's all kinds of things we need to do. We need better election laws. We need better candidates. We need candidates that can actually articulate what they believe and why. Gosh, wouldn't that be nice? right? Here's another one. When they get elected, wouldn't it be great if they did what they said? Because what I've found is that people that do what they say when they get elected get reelected. And people that get elected saying one thing and do the opposite when they get to D.C. or Richmond because they're convinced that if they're too conservative, they'll lose their seat, they lose their seat. Or they stay there and screw it up for the rest of us. So, part of it's on the candidates, part of it's on us you know, being better about how we actually work within the current election laws that we have, but a big part of politics is downstream from culture. I cannot say it enough. If you are allowing the government to raise your kids, don't be surprised when they show up and vote pro-government right? vodi Bauckham, Bauckham, said it best. Don't send your kids to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans, right? And that's what we're doing. So I, I would just highly encourage you, if, if, if you're not having those, a, a, lot of parents, a lot of parents fall into this trap. This is the way I describe it. Parents actually reinforce the authoritarian trap with a lot of their kids. And I know this because I taught for a while. And here's what I found. Student goes off to college, student comes back, and student has had their entire worldview changed, and their entire worldview challenged, because they're living in a social environment, right, that rewarded them for repeating woke progressive things and punished them for saying conservative things. And so they come back and they start to challenge the parent, or they ask questions. And then instead of the parent answering the questions, the parent gets nervous because they don't have the answers, and so they get mad at their kid and it pushes their kid ever deeper into the arms of the people that are teaching them these things. Because growing up, what we thought we were doing was teaching our kids conservative values. What we were actually doing was teaching them a reward and punishment system within an authoritarian environment. Hey dad, why can't I do this? Because I said so and I'm your dad. What do they learn from that? Oh, dad's the authority figure. If I make dad happy, things go well. If I make dad sad, things go bad. What happens when you're not the primary authority figure in your child's life anymore? What happens when you're replaced by the college professor or by the boss or by somebody else and they're no longer equipped to be able to make an argument or articulate why they believe what they believe? All they know is reward, punishment. You're the boss now? Great. How do I adjust my behavior to make sure you're happy with me? So it, when we say it starts in the home, that's not cliche. That's a universal fundamental truth. And we cannot outsource the raising or the educating of our children to any other entity. And dear God, if you're going to do it, don't do it to the government. You have to take the personal responsibility to raise them up so they know what they believe. Because you're not always going to be there. And if we do a better job of affecting that, I think we'll win more elections if we do a better job of equipping our children to go into an environment that has become increasingly hostile toward our worldview, and they actually feel equipped to go out there. Because I got news for you. We're the rebels now, baby. <laughs> right? We're the rebels now. So if, if you raise them up, I mean, it, it is amazing to me how everybody tries to just rip off the scripture as if it was the new thing that they came up with yesterday. Right? It's Ecclesiastes. It's Proverbs, like go through, make sure that your kids feel equipped to be able to debate this stuff, and, and when they do, and they feel secure in coming back to you with questions, and they're not going to be punished for it, you'll be amazed at the relationship that will help you build with your kids, and how it will foster that, and when they're in those hard times and they don't know, they'll still, use, they'll still look at you as a source rather than an enemy.
1: That concludes this episode of Making the Argument with Nick Freitas. I want to thank you all for listening, and especially to all the folks who joined us at these various events. I know Nick enjoys getting to meet you all, and he's excited to attend many more events in 2023. Be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I just noticed that there's actually a Q&A section in Spotify, so if you're a Spotify listener, leave us a comment there. If you're on YouTube, drop a comment. Let us know what statement stood out to you or what might have brought you the most value. Again, from everyone at Team Freddy's, we hope you had a Merry Christmas and a holiday season. We'll see you this Thursday for another episode of Making the Argument.